Hello, and welcome to the Nutri Mama podcast. Thank you for joining me, Federica Amati, founder of Nutri Mama, for this series of interesting interviews called Ask the Experts. Today's episode features Professor John Warner, an allergist and pediatrician who was awarded an OBE for his work in children's allergies. We delve deeper into some myths around allergenic foods, and he gives some very clear advice that I hope all of you will find useful. There's a slight issue with sound quality on this episode at the beginning. It does get better as you go through the episode, but instead of cutting out the bits that are a bit unclear, I thought I'd leave them in because there's so much useful information that I honestly thought it was worth keeping. I hope you feel the same way, but if the sound is bothering you, just fast forward a bit to the middle of the episode where you'll find the information specific to pregnancy and weaning from Professor John Warner, which luckily is much clearer than the beginning of the episode. Hi John, thank you so much for joining me today and I'm really excited to get your expert guidance for allergies and allergenic foods generally through pregnancy, breastfeeding and weaning. So welcome and John, you're an absolute expert in this field. You run your own allergy clinic here in London and you also have published hundreds of papers and do some amazing research on the topic. So really excited to hear your expertise on this. So I think we'll start off with really understanding what the difference is between a food allergy and a food intolerance. And if you could just explain to us how you diagnose them and what the difference is between the two, both for adults, but for children as well. Okay, well, allergy implies that there is an immunological overreaction in other words, hypersensitivity, whereas allergy is reserved entirely for events that occur as a result of an immune mechanism. One that people are most familiar with is the immediate reaction, which is mediated by an antibody known as IgE, which is mounted against proteins predominantly in the food. So the interaction between the two induces the release of um, a whole range of mediators, which produces all the immediate symptoms, but then can also lead to a later inflammatory response because the mediators pull in inflammatory cells and are intensely damaging tissues. So that's immediate allergy. There can also be immunological reaction where lymphocytes are the conductors of the immune response. Mm. They orchestrate all sorts and then release mediators of their own that can cause an inflammatory response. For instance, in, in eczema, enteropathies that are caused by food very similar to celiac disease. Although celiac disease is still an immune response, but it's an autoimmune response where the gluten induces the bowel to generate antibodies against tissue proteins, which then cause perishing of the bowel wall and then problems with absorption. And it's very serious, isn't it, celiac disease? It's very different to having a gluten sensitivity, difficult to manage and if I'm yes. not mistaken, people who do have celiacs, and how rare is celiacs? How often do you see that in the population generally? Oh, I mean, incredible, much rarer than an allergy or even as than uh, gluten intolerance due to uh, an ordinary allergic response, much, much less frequent. There is variation in different ethnic groups and there is a variation depending on diet, but we'll come back to that. An intolerance, which is non immunological 
mitigated. The best example is lactose intolerance, where failure to digest lactose because the lactase enzyme just perishes, stops being produced after early infancy in quite a significant percentage of the population. Then when you ingest any dairy products with lactose, the lactose is then broken down by bowel bacteria into lactic acid. Mm. Lactic acid then produces symptoms, abdominal pains, okay. distension, diarrhea, general feeling of unwellness. That is a much slower reaction after exposure. It only occurs with a relatively large dose. Most people with lactose intolerance can tolerate small quantities, but not large quantities. Whereas with a milk allergy, Mm-hmm. We react to minute quantities, microgram quantities sometimes of uh, the protein in the milk. So very, very different. But there are lots of other um, metabolic variations that can produce intolerance. People who are intolerant to mushrooms have oh. a, a, a defect in an enzyme that de- digests trehalose, which is the main sugar in mushrooms. And huh. trehalase deficiency, pretty rare, but yeah. that will produce mushroom intolerance. So this um, brings me on to the next question, John, actually, because there are so many products out there at the moment uh, claiming to be intolerance tests, allergy tests, where you can send off mm. a hair or throat swab and you send it off in the post and they come back with this very official looking list of foods that you should avoid foods that you shouldn't avoid and I just I wonder if you could just tell us if that is accurate if there's an accurate way of telling us whether we have an allergy or or an intolerance or whether it is honestly just a bit of a marketing scam well well I, I would say immediately any online testing that's offered don't yeah. it is most of it is totally bogus analysis mm. is a total nonsense um, and there are other even worse ones you know you can send a sample of your nails to somebody and apparently they even clinics offering something called electrodermal testing sometimes right. you know as vega testing which is again totally bogus absolutely totally bogus and related to apparently electric currents in your body they mm. they create an electric circuit with a particular food in it, and if the uh, dial moves in one direction, you're allergic. And what these clinics are playing on mm. is that they know which are the common allergies, and they often know what are the associations. They make their money out of that, mm. but there have been studies to show that they are totally bogus. And I would always say, only go to conventional allergy services it should always be possible to get some proper validated allergy tests but they should only be done in context if i was to do a sort of panel of 100 allergy tests on you or anybody else one or two of them might come up as a weak positive and that is be totally meaningless you know there's no point in testing for allergy to elephants and people in the uk is that yeah we only test for things that are relevant to the individual and relevant to the problem and the results have to be interpreted in the light of those other pieces of information right and that's true of any test for any disease hmm. The test has to be done in context. So go to a real allergist or an allergy clinic and, and, and am I correct in thinking that the main way of testing allergies is the skin prick test? 
either the skin prick test, um, mm. which gives you a very rapid and instant result, you'll have the result within 15 to 20 minutes of the test being done. And it's very illustrative because you can see the reaction on your arm right. and see that there's a little wheel and flare. And then you know, it's possible to then understand how that is going to cause you a problem. But the test has to be done with care. They have to have a positive and a negative control because some people's skin doesn't react enough to for the skin test to give a useful result. And some people's skin overreacts. They have so-called dermatographism. We just scratch and they get a bit of a reaction at the site of the scratch. Well, okay. the skin tests will be meaningless under those circumstances. And then it's necessary to do blood tests and there are blood tests to measure the levels of specific IgE. That's really interesting. Thank you so much. And just to be clear, the blood test is not the same as the blood type uh, diet where you get told what blood type makes you allergic to more foods. That is not the same thing as a blood test. Right? Again, is nonsense. And can I also say the labs yeah. that offer IgG antibody testing mm-hmm. are also bogus. Interesting. IgG okay. um, is, in many people will have high levels of food at IgG antibodies, and that relates to exposure. The more you eat of a particular yeah. or, or are exposed to a particular substance, the more likely you are to develop IgG antibodies. And in fact, one of the subtypes of IgG, IgG4, uh-huh. if that is increased, that's protective rather that's, than damaging. That's so interesting because there have been, I know people who've had these tests and they've had IgG tests and they are told that they shouldn't eat the foods that they eat the most of. And of course, when they receive the results, they're like, that makes so much sense. That's why I've been tired that's why I haven't lost weight and it's a, and I, I you know my instinct was to say well no, I think it just means that you've eaten those foods recently <laughs> yes. um, so that's really important distinction to make and mm. w- brings me nicely on to you know the crux of our conversation today which is when a woman is pregnant or when she is thinking of uh, wanting to try for a baby as you know the first thousand days so from conception through to second birthday is such an important window for setting up the blueprint for the rest of the child's life but also for protecting the mother's health in the future. So I want to start off with whether, in your professional opinion, there is any evidence to say that women should avoid allergens or allergenic foods, obviously assuming that they don't have an allergy themselves. So if you're celiac and you're pregnant, we wouldn't suggest you eat gluten. But aside from existing allergies, is there any evidence to suggest that women should cut out food groups? Absolutely none. And in fact, almost quite the opposite. Pregnancy and during lactation is an opportunity for the mother to educate the baby into understanding and accepting the environment into which they are. In other words, the same environment as the mother. Mm -hmm. So what the mother eats and tolerates will have a better chance of ensuring that the baby is able to eat and tolerate that same food without problems. And avoiding it might actually have an adverse effect. There have been studies to look at allergen avoidance, avoiding egg, milk, wheat, Mm -hmm. fish during pregnancy. And the outcome is that the baby is born with a lower birth weight and has more problems as a consequence. The key in pregnancy is a good, balanced, diverse diet to sustain the health of the mother and the growth of the fetus. Any attempts to modify that diet will 
have a greater potential to do harm than good. And that extends way beyond allergy. In fact, if you look at all the evidence in relation to optimizing the health of offspring, it is by having a good, diverse, balanced diet. And the one that's been most studied is something known as the Mediterranean diet, you know, lots of fresh fruit and vegetable and lots of fish. And in other words, a very diverse, healthy diet. And that's associated with a lower risk of all sorts of allergies, but also with a lower risk of obesity, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease. So, mm-hmm. in fact, health of the community will be promoted by having a very good, nutritious, diverse diet through pregnancy and lactation. So just to be clear, we shouldn't be cutting out gluten, we shouldn't be cutting out dairy, we shouldn't be cutting out uh, peanuts and no. all these other... <laughs> what, what about shellfish? Because that's something that's quite contentious. No, I mean, say- uh, there are certain foods which have the potential to have um, organisms in them which could be mm-hmm. damaging. So if there is the potential to pass on listeria or something like yeah. that, then those are things to be cautious about and maybe to have the foods well cooked rather than raw form, for instance. But beyond that, no, there is absolutely no necessity to avoid anything. And that's in families that already have allergy in the family as well Interesting. as you know, the whole population. So if um, if there's some allergic mothers or mothers who have partners who are allergic, so perhaps they have you know, a strong peanut allergy in the family, what what advice would you give those mums if they themselves are not allergic, but there are there is allergy in the family? What would you suggest they do to try and decrease the risk of the offspring having the allergy? Well, I mean, there's some general things first. Mm-hmm. Um, obesity is a problem, and actually, there is evidence that obesity increases the risks of allergy and making allergic reactions more severe. So, mothers, if at all possible, should be of appropriate weight, and if mm-hmm. they are overweight, to try and do something about it, even preconceptually. Yeah, um, really important for increasing fertility as well. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, obese mothers have uh, babies that have a greater propensity to obesity as well, yeah. um, and actually also um, probably increased risk of allergy through through the liver. If a mother is obese, there'll be more fat that's deposited in the liver of the baby during well during pregnancy. Wow. And the fatty liver causes slight impairment of liver function and a little bit of inflammation in the liver, which might promote uh, food sensitization once they okay. start having foods of their own. So there is a bit of a connection between disturbed liver function in early infancy and increased risk of food allergy. Wow, that can come back to that. So, yeah. so really important. Okay. Don't smoke. Yeah. Because of the way that is, keep you know active, exercising, and then have a full range of foods. I mean, I, we've not got enough evidence to say that if there's peanut allergy in the family, you should you gorge yourself with peanuts. Mm. But certainly, eating peanuts when when you want to eat peanuts is entirely mm. appropriate. The key is after delivery. Obviously, breastfeeding is the key because breast milk has a lot of mediators in it, which can help the baby's immune system to um, develop tolerance and also to develop a normal range of bacteria in the bowel, which are helping the immune system to work in a normal way and reducing the risk of bowel infection. So breastfeeding, but 
Mothers should carry on eating a diverse normal diet. There is no evidence that the mother avoiding any foods from her diet uh, will make any difference, you know, while she's breastfeeding. So you carry on having a diverse normal diet. The one thing that they need to think about is the food coming into contact with skin. Okay. Um, because sensitized, uh, the bowel is a very tolerizing organ, as in the, as is the liver. So, foods, uh, any foreign proteins which are in food, which get into the bowel, provided they're in the bowel and there is no inflammation in the bowel, mm-hmm. there's no nasty bugs there that cause inflammation, or that the food isn't producing some irritation to the bowel wall. And some foods will have some enzymic activity which might potentially do that. Provided there is a normal microbiome, normal bugs in the bowel uh, mm-hmm. being there because of the breastfeeding, there will be no what's known as co-stimulation. So the food will that the, the proteins will be picked up by the immune system, but without any irritant to make the immune system say, "Hey, this is bad." The immune system will look at it and say, "Don't need to react to that," and will switch off completely and induce tolerance. Brilliant. And that in part is induced in the lymphoid accumulations, the little immune active areas in the bowel mm-hmm. wall and in the liver, because um, some of the food will have been picked up by cells and transported to the liver. And provided mm-hmm. the liver has no inflammation and there's no fat in the liver that's causing inflammation, wow. then again, the liver will switch off the immune system and say, that we're going to tolerate, it's not a problem. And provided that switch off, that tolerance induction, occurs during the first months of life, partly through uh, breast milk and the little bits of food that are in breast milk. And then during weaning, Mm. um, there'll never be any allergy to that particular product. But if before that tolerance has been induced, the proteins are presented to the immune system in a different way, either through inflammation in the bowel or say in someone who has eczema and has Mm -hmm. inflammation in the skin and the food comes into contact with the skin, it's more likely to induce an allergic reaction. How interesting. So we now know that eczema is one of the um, key factors that increases the risk of becoming food allergic, but it's through the skin. And so the key then is if there is a lot of allergy in the family to make sure that A, that the eczema is treated very well, Mm-hmm. right from the start and b that there should be no skin contact with food proteins and so that means you know if you've been eating peanuts mm-hmm. make sure you've washed your hands very carefully before you pick up your baby wow and, and question about that so how about things like almond oils that are often put in baby baby oils and yeah. Would you say that it's best to avoid those and stick with yes. something like an olive oil or I think, you know, some basically a non-nut based oil? Would yes. that be better? Yeah, a non-vegetable based oil. I mean, okay. <clears throat> we see, for instance, babies with eczema that have been uh, had a vino put on their skin, which is made out of oats, oats and yeah, had a oat right. allergy. And certainly in the past, uh, peanut allergy was being induced through creams that were used to treat eczema which actually had a a peanut oil base, which with some peanut protein in it.
I hope you're enjoying this episode of Mamas Ask the Experts. If you are, please share it widely and feel free to subscribe for future episodes. Gosh, I but I see I was told Avino is great for babies. So that's really interesting that yeah. actually that could be making a, a bad impact on baby's skin. It could do, um, yes. Wow. So so we have to try and avoid, especially if a baby has eczema, try and avoid putting food proteins essentially in contact with the skin before yeah. the baby's had the chance to become tolerant to it through breastfeeding. By eating. So the, the so the next message is of course once you get to weaning. Yes. And weaning um, or get complementary feeding. Yes. Do not wait grimly to six months of age. Right. That is a World Health Organization and UNICEF absolute. Mm-hmm. You know, you must exclusively breastfeed, and nothing mm-hmm. else must pass the lips of the baby before six months of age. Yeah. Now that might be appropriate in the developing world. Yes. Um, there are nutritional problems if you don't carry on with feeding and and all sorts of issues about infection but um in the developed world babies who are programmed early in pregnancy to grow rapidly have an increasing nutrient demand that usually exceeds what can be delivered by uh, breast milk alone Mm -hmm. beyond three to four months of age and i think you have to take your cue from the baby when the baby clearly is dissatisfied with just being breastfed that is the cue to begin to wean. And at that point, don't delay introducing any foods. Uh, and that includes peanuts, um, although not, you don't feed peanuts to babies, but <laughs> peanut butter. Yeah. And there are lots of nut butters now available. Yeah. And, and I recommend that, you know, once a baby starts wanting to have additional complementary foods, well, give all of those. And yeah. the sooner the better. And there are trials now that have approved that. Have proved that Early feeding of, mm. of peanut once babies are being weaned reduces the risk of peanut allergy by a wide margin. So That's really interesting. Absolutely no doubt about that. I know that from 17 weeks onwards, really, if the baby shows interest, if they're able to swallow quite effectively, of course they have to learn to do that too. Yes. And if they're able to hold their head up and, and show interest in the food, it's really a good time to start. And I think it's quite scary for especially first-time mothers, you know complementary feeding does not mean that your baby instantly goes to eating a whole bowl of food the first tastes i think from around sort of say let's say five months for most babies maybe in 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 this context in the uk if they're not premature or if they're gaining weight well i think those first tastes can be so important it's when you can introduce a little bit of well-cooked egg you know the little bit of peanut butter on toast and if you actually my approach was to start with those and give those first and a yogurt you know maybe choosing a live fire yogurt to increase the biotic effects of it but it it does it does come with some resistance from other health professionals or even from you know people from different generations where they say oh no you mustn't go with proteins first you must start with pear (laughs) pear has absolutely it's lovely but it has no you know benefit in terms of decreasing allergies or Mm-hmm. or even really nutritionally it's nice every now and then but so that's really nice to hear from you a confirmation that actually the, the ev- recent evidence shows and your clinical experience shows us that introducing allergenic foods as soon as babies showing interest is a good approach to reduce the likelihood of allergies it is and uh, the other thing to uh, to point out is that fish nuts peanuts mm-hmm. have 
um, polyunsaturated fatty acids mm -hmm. that are much more beneficial for health um, yeah. than, uh, than other foods. And there is some evidence that having the right balance of the omega-3 to omega-6 reduces risk of allergy as well. I mean, that's relatively weak evidence, but there actually are some trials that have supplemented with uh, fish oils in early infancy, well, actually during pregnancy, pregnancy that's infancy, interesting. which mm -hmm. have shown slight reductions in, in allergy as well as other health benefits. So just quickly going back to uh, the breastfeeding, I, I'm aware of how beneficial it is. And, but of course, there are some, some mothers who can't or won't breastfeed and they would prefer to use formula and that, that does happen. Um, so in those cases, is there something we can do to help those babies reduce their likelihood of allergy? Should, breast, but should bottle feeding mums really aim to introduce allergenic foods earlier? You know, I, I think that something hopefully we'll get to in the future is uh, donor breast milk as opposed to formula where possible. Um, mm -hmm. I know that if that is possible, it's really preferable. But let's just go with bottle fed babies right now. What can we do to try and give them as much of a head start with uh, reducing allergies and being introduced to different types of proteins aside from their formula milk? Mm. There is, I mean, there's a bit of controversy here. Mm -hmm. That there are studies in the past that have suggested by using hydrolyzed milk formulae, some particularly extensively hydrolyzed milk formulae, yeah. in families where there is already allergic problems, that that might slightly reduce the risk of early uh, allergic problems, and particularly eczema in okay. babies, but. Uh, more recently, so-called meta-analyses incorporating mm -hmm. all the studies that have ever been done have been negative. Mm -hmm. And there is diminishing evidence that uh, um, using modified milk formulae early on, if, that, if they can't breastfeed, will make any difference. Okay. However, obviously, the companies marketing these milks are frankly a lot of money. trying to look <laughs> for something that might enhance protective effects. And the most recent is adding prebiotics and probiotics yeah. to the milk. And there are one or two trials that have shown a bit of an effect. But again, at the moment, there is insufficient evidence to say that that will make any difference. And so in the end, the issue is, and I mean, in, in terms of understanding immune mechanisms, if you modify the protein that you're feeding, then the baby might develop tolerance to that modified protein, but not necessarily to the whole protein, because right. the reaction of the immune system is not to the whole protein, all there's one very long, big molecule, it's to little bits of it. Mm. And if the bits that are important for inducing tolerance to milk are missing from the hydrolyzed milk formula, then they won't have developed tolerance. Right. And, and so in the end, it may be far better to just go with a standard milk formula. Um, but if at all possible, one should be breastfeeding. And the longer the breastfeeding goes on for, the better. There is also a bit of evidence that... The key is not just breastfeeding and then going straight on to an alternative. You know, they start complementary, yeah. stop the breastfeeding. No, right. carry on with breastfeeding because mm -hmm. there's evidence that what's in the breast milk will help to continue to induce tolerance to the foods as they're beginning to be introduced. 
So as much as possible, overlapping breastfeeding with weaning onto all the standard allergenic foods is the most likely to achieve the best. And that's why I think we try to refer to it as complementary feeding as opposed to weaning. Um, I found a really interesting article saying that the lactoferrin in breast milk may actually also increase the absorption of iron from complementary foods in children. Mm -hmm. So it's doing all sorts of wonderful things, even if you're only breastfeeding say morning and evening by the time baby's sort of maybe eight nine months they're not that interested if they're eating but if even just breastfeeding morning and evening is is beneficial for the baby and there's no mm-hmm. need to go on to follow on formulas or frankly I just I think slightly marketing ploys but um so that's really really interesting but so in terms of weaning a bottle fed infant would you suggest going for the earlier approach so that they have some exposure no, to diverse I'd I'd use exactly the same approach the same. Okay. exactly the same um, I don't think there's much point in making it any difference. Okay. And I, I mean, the, the the only other things of interest, which again needs more elaboration, and it all comes back to the gut microbiome. Mm-hmm. There's evidence that in families who either live on farms or in rural communities mm-hmm. that predominantly drink unpasteurized milk, there is much less allergy in the babies and the, and well in the whole family. Right now. Obviously, you don't feed unpasteurized milk to newborn babies. But if the mothers are drinking unpasteurized milk, then that is changing, well, affecting their microbiome in their gut because there's lots of bugs in, in unpasteurized milk. Mm-hmm. There are also other active ingredients that are rather similar to those in human breast milk, which are lost in the processing when you make a milk formula, mm-hmm. all of which are likely to be beneficial. and probably improve the quality of the mother's breast milk and it may well be that for the future we should be looking and certainly there are trials that we would now like to do Mm -hmm. trying to optimize the mother's uh, diet and environment in a way that improves the quality of her breast milk and part of that might be in pre and probiotic treatments of the mother during pregnancy and lactation which will then optimise her breast milk in a way that gives it greater, is more protective. That is so interesting. So I think you have managed to cover everything so brilliantly. And just the takeaway messages, I would say, for, for, for allergies and allergenic foods and from trying to conceive through pregnancy, introducing complementary foods to your baby, the main messages I would say are variety, a very balanced diet, don't exclude food groups. If anything, go for very probiotic foods like unpasteurized milk, uh, sauerkraut, perhaps kefir, these things that add diversity and bacterial load to the diet. Um, mm. Do interrupt me if I'm wrong. <laughs> and, and just really enjoy eating fresh, like whole foods, including nuts, fish and vegetables, and try and expose your baby to as many flavors and different types of food as possible through pregnancy, through breastfeeding, and then when they start weaning. Yeah, and I think the the other thing to say is um, around taste preference. Mm -hmm. Taste preference evolves in babies a bit just from six months onwards. Usually there's not much before six months. So you can give babies some very bitter things under six months and they'll accept them perfectly well beyond six Mm -hmm. months. Yuck, rejected. So the more you can get diversity of taste and texture into the diet early on, the less likely you are to have feeding problems at a later stage. And it's being a bit too precious about the way in which you give foods to, to, to babies mm-hmm. that results in later feeding problems. 
quite independent of allergy. Yeah. So try and get it all in there. It is important to begin to get savoury type tastes into the diet once you start weaning. Uh, my my daughters adore broccoli and I think it's just because I basically gave them broccoli most days I was going to ask you one more question I know this is really I forgot to ask you earlier but it's, it really impacts a lot of people this increasing diagnosis of cow's milk protein allergy um, in children where you'll have mothers with newborns who are absolutely screaming and they're in pain and often um, you know doctors or health visitors may suggest that they have CMPA I just want to get a feel for how frequent really is CMPA? How do you distinguish between a baby who is just a newborn? Newborns tend to be fussy. Being born is quite traumatic. And the first weeks can be really a lot of adjustment, I think, and a lot of crying and, you know, seemingly pain, but often just their digestive systems being sort of starting up and learning how to digest milk or breast milk. How often do you think it's CMPA? How, how frequent actually is that? And, and should... And are there are markers that when you see it, you think, yes, this child definitely has CMPA as opposed to just fussiness? Yeah, I mean, it, it's not uncommon. I mean, two to six percent is the sort of estimated frequency okay. in the first year of life. And the babies that are just irritable and maybe cry at night um, or periodically are, are having small vomits or even frequent positing, that's mm. not cow's milk protein intolerance or allergy okay. but if the baby screams during feeds and okay. one of the very characteristic uh, features is of a baby arching away you know the bottles put in their mouth they take a couple of swallows and then they arch away and start screaming they are in pain and they often have a condition known as eosinophilic esophagitis with milk being the main trigger, where they're getting an allergic inflammatory response in the lower end of the esophagus, which then also might be associated with a lot of vomiting. So vomiting and screaming simultaneously or screaming during feeds may be more likely to be a genuine allergy, and particularly if it's associated with eczema. So a lot of them will have already have a, some, some eczema as well. Okay, so, wow. Okay. And so under those circumstances, one will be looking very carefully. Uh, mm -hmm. The only difficulty there is that often the skin tests and any, any tests don't show anything. And the only way you can establish the diagnosis is by uh, avoidance of all milk proteins and showing that there is an improvement and then doing a challenge to show that in the challenge may react again. Right. Thankfully, a lot of those babies, they'll have this for maybe the first year of life and then a lot for a lot it just um, right gradually right. resolves so with a lot of milk allergy something like 85 percent of milk allergic babies genuinely milk allergic babies will be able to tolerate milk after the first couple of years of life okay brilliant and, and does it happen in breastfed infants and would you recommend somebody's breastfeeding their baby and the baby cries and arches their back and is really upset during breastfeeds and has some eczema so you know really points towards it should the mother stop breastfeeding and go for a CMPA formula or should she try to eliminate dairy from her own diet first? What's, the, you know, what's the, I know that it's individual. So uh, let me just say that. But generally speaking, would you say that a woman should stop breastfeeding if she, if she suspects this? Yeah, there's a bit of dispute about that. I'm, in fact, I'm having arguments with one or two of my colleagues about that okay. because there has been an attempt recently to try and get a feel for how much, food protein 
appears in human breast milk. And a number of my colleagues are saying, well, it's just not enough to produce a significant allergic reaction. Okay. Uh, but but I, from my clinical experience, there are times when the, if you get the mother to eliminate milk or, or other foods that you suspect might be causing the problem in the baby, that that results in the baby improving. And I've, I, many years ago, did a double blind challenge. And it was actually a nurse who was working with me in the clinic who said, you know, my baby keeps getting flares of eczema every time I eat egg. And I said, well, let's let's see whether that's genuinely the case. And I got her, got her to be, go on an egg-free diet. And then I did a double blind challenge. I gave her some egg powder and then some sham egg powders to, to add into her diet during one week and then not in another week. And the eczema flared in the egg week and not in the wow. non-egg week. And I actually collected some of her breast milk and skin tested the baby with her breast milk. And the skin test with her milk was positive from the egg-containing week. So I have no doubt that there are times when that can happen. Okay. But that's relatively less common than in uh, in babies who are already on the yeah. Well, of course, the milk formula pre- contains yeah. a lot of cow's milk protein, so yeah, that makes sense. And one, one of the one of the things that also has become a little bit apparent is that if you feed a baby in the first few days of life, yes. and then go on to breastfeeding, they have a higher probability of being milk allergic. So that very early exposure, and then not carrying on. And it's probably better to just carry on because once you've started, if you then stop, you're more likely to create a situation where sensitization will occur. That's really interesting. Compared with sustaining the intake and eventually inducing tolerance. Mm. So, you know, that's uh, the problem that occurred in the past with so many midwives in, in maternity units were, yeah. you know, taking the babies away from the mother to give them a rest and then feeding them, giving them a bottle feed. And the baby developed having milk allergy later. So that's really you know, sort of an all or none phenomenon is that is that is that's required. And I think that really points to the importance of colostrum and the fact that women shouldn't panic when their milk doesn't come in for a few days. Yeah. I, my first with my first daughter, I was a, a mess with breastfeeding because it's it's harder than I thought. And the information that we have isn't necessarily helpful. It takes weeks for the milk to actually stabilize into a good uh, sort of balance of the baby and the first days you you know you colostrum is enough for the baby their stomachs are tiny yeah. and actually if we can avoid giving any formula especially in the first week that seems to be protective yeah. you know so i think that's a really important message actually so i'm glad you brought that up because that's yes that's it great. is it's yeah. critical well we know colostrum concentrates the levels of many of the most important mediators of a beneficial immune response they're incredibly high concentrations in colostrum. So you, you're giving them something that is very concentrated. And we know from animal studies, colostrum in many a- a animals is absolutely critical. If they don't get the colostrum, they die, basically. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Um, pigs, for instance, absolutely pivotal. If a pig is denied colostrum, they will die very rapidly. Wow. Um, and, um, and, it's, and that's true of most animals. And so, so again, it's about optimizing the health of the mother. It's, yeah, the message yeah. is always there. That's a good message. I like that message very much. So it's, and so even if you are planning to bottle feed, actually just giving your baby some colostrum milk for the beginning and then maybe the first week and then you can stop breastfeeding is better than none at all. 
yeah. I would say. And for Absolutely. those moms who are who have preemies and their children end up in uh, neonatal intensive care units, you know, pumping and expressing that colostrum where possible, if the mother is healthy to do so, um, really important. Also, it reduces the risk of uh, complication in babies where the where the bowel can die. Right. So. Yeah so really colostrum milk this first few days or the first week or so is crucial um for yes. the baby's health and for preventing allergies as well absolutely That's yes great yes. well again thank you so much i was so pleased to be able to interview you it's been a real pleasure i know we've sat next to each other at meetings at imperial before and i yes. i'm so pleased to be able to spend this time with you and actually I'll pick your brains a bit and uh, thank you so much i'll hopefully be able to interview again in the future because i'm sure this is going to generate lots of questions and interest so i hope yeah. to have you back on soon and thank you so much john it's a pleasure absolutely thank you. have pleasure. a lovely day <laughs> and you bye thank you so much for listening i hope you found that useful and i hope that you'll join me again for the next episode of nutri mamas ask the experts <laughs>